بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطاهرين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله and welcome to this podcast series of a commentary on نهج البلاغة by Mizan Institute وخلف فيكم ما خلفت الأنبياء في أممها إذ لم يتركوهم هملا بغير طريق واضح ولا علم قائم كتاب ربكم مبينا حلاله وحرامه after Imam Ali in this first khutbah, he speaks of the Holy Prophet out of all the different prophets that Allah has sent and the special responsibilities and their special rank that he had, the Holy Prophet had as the seal of the prophets. Then he moves on to what this prophet left behind after him. So it's inevitable, whether we like it or not, even the most highest of God's creatures, the most chosen ones of his creation, they have to leave this dunya. And so Imam Ali, he made a point of that as well, that the time came for the Holy Prophet to leave this dunya. Now when prophets leave this dunya, it's not that they just go and they don't care about what's going to happen after them. And so this prophet, just like previous prophets, it says, left something behind. He didn't leave the people without anything, just leave them in vain as if. No, no, he left them but he left them with something. So it says, But the Prophet left among you the same which other Prophets left among their peoples, because Prophets do not leave them untended in dark, without a clear path and a standing sign. So if a Prophet is going to leave this world, that's how he's going to leave this world. He will leave a sign, a beacon of light, something that the people can cling on to after him and the prophet muhammad is no exception to this rule and so the imam points this out now a person will ask well what is that beacon of light or what is that sign and that flag that one can cling on to so that they are not left alone and that uh, they don't get misguided after a shia of course will say that we well we look at hadith al-thaqalain kitab allah wa itrati that the Holy Prophet left behind the Holy Book and the Holy Progeny of his, the Imams of Ahlul Bayt That's what a Shia will say. Um, but the thing is that here, the Imam, as he goes on to elaborate on this alamin qa'im and tariqin wadih, he only speaks about the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He doesn't speak about anything else. Now here are some commentators, they've tried their best to try to fit in the Ahlul Bayt into this part of the khutbah. So for example, you might find someone who says, Tariqin wadih, clear path is the Qur'an, and then alamin qa'im, a standing sign, is an imam, for example. That's what some might say. Um, others might you know, somehow try to squeeze it in in another way. But at the end of the day, the imam in this part of the khutbah, he is only speaking about the Qur'an. Okay. Now I do want to point out after we go through this part of the khutbah how I personally think that you can get Prophet or Ahlul Bayt out of this out of what he says well the Prophet is passing has passed away so Imams how we can get Imams after this um, khutbah is over how we can conclude that the Imam Imam Ali here is is somehow indirectly also saying that you look you're going to need more than just the Quran because at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, we know that Hadith al-Thaqalain is saying that two weighty things have been left behind, not just one. In addition to the fact that you'll have other khutbahs where the Imam 
is going to point out the Ahlul Bayt as well. So we bring all of these together and we understand what is going on and what the Imam has in mind. But all in all, we know that the Quran, uh, according to some versions of Hadith Al-Thaqalain, um, that Ahaduhuma Akbaru min al-Akhar or Ihtahuma Akbaru min al-Ukhra, that one of these two weighty things is the greater one, is the one that everyone falls back on. And of course, obviously, that would be the Quran. And so here the Imam is speaking about that one. And that's why he goes on to say, Kitaba Rabbikum. That this sign that Allah has left, this tariq and wadih, this clear path that He has left, is Kitaba Rabbikum, is the book of your Lord. Now there are going to be 14 things that the Imam says about this book. And here I'm going to be reading off of one of these commentaries of Nahj al Balagha by Ayatullah Makarim. So it says, Number one, مُبَيِّنًا حَلَالَهُ وَحَرَامَهُ وَفَرَائِذَهُ وَفَضَائِلَهُ In this book, what you will find is what has been clarified and made clear through this Qur'an is what the halal of Allah is, the haram of Allah is, the wajib of Allah is, the mustahab of Allah is. They've identified fadail with those mustahabbat. Um, so they're fadila. They're something good to have. Versus fara'id, which is the wajibat. Those things are a wajib. So that's the first one. Second thing that you have in this Qur'an. This Qur'an also shows us what the abrogator or abrogating verses are versus the abrogated verses. So let me just give a very quick explanation of this. This is something that you'll find in Qur'anic sciences. You'll find this in tafsir. You even find this in fiqh. The discussion of nasikh and mansukh in the Qur'an or nasikh, abrogation. What does that mean? Abrogation in the Qur'an means that um, now there might be different uh, definitions to it and then different versions and types of it that you'll have. Even the Sunnis might have something called nasikh tilawa and then they'll have other forms of it. Um, but the Shia don't have that. But all in all, nasikh is a widely accepted um, concept uh, within all schools of thought, uh, or at least the major schools of thought. And so what it denotes is how a ruling, now this is the one that everyone accepts, there are other versions of it as I said, some might accept, some might not accept, but the one that everyone accepts is that there is a naskh in the Qur'an where you will have a rule that seemed to be unrestricted and something that was absolute. But after a while, that another verse comes and to lets us know that that, ver that rule was not one that was unrestricted, but rather it was only for a specific window and period of time. And now it has ended. That rule doesn't hold anymore. That rule has been abrogated, is mansukh by another verse that abrogates it, which is nasikh. Now, we have to keep in mind, this does not entail tahrif or alteration of the Qur'an because both verses are going to still be there. It's just the rule that one of them was giving us has been abrogated by another verse. And there are different opinions on how many verses we have actually that are nasikh in the Qur'an. Um, but the one example that usually is going to be cited, and some of you have probably heard this before, is that famous story of how the Prophet was being approached by the people and people wanted to spend time with him and talk to him and ask them their questions. And sometimes these questions um, were not very important ones and they were wasting the time of the Prophet. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surat Al-Mujadala, verse 12 it says ya ayyuhalladhina amanu 
When you come to speak to the Prophet, when you want to you know, have a, a private time with him, you want to have najwa with him, you want to whisper to him, and him responding to you, if you want to do that, that's fine. But before you do that, Before you start this conversation with the Prophet, we want you to uh, put aside or to give a sadaqa um, uh, in, the name, in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So put aside some sadaqa, charity, uh, give it to the poor before you actually come to speak to the Prophet. Now, the story we have all probably heard that uh, Imam Ali was maybe the only one that was left out of all the people who wanted to speak to the Prophet. Once they saw that they're going to have to put their hands in their pockets and actually uh, give charity before it, everyone deserted the Prophet. No one was interested anymore all of a sudden. All of a sudden, the ones who... We're taking the Prophet's time left and right now are not interested in speaking with him anymore, which says a lot about the, 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 those people and how, what their understanding of this Prophet was. Did they actually see him as such a great individual? Or was it that they just saw him as if he's like a good person, sometimes a storyteller that can tell us stories of previous nations, maybe things like that, or tell us you know, the future or what's happening in the Barzakh or what's going to happen in Jahannam and Jannah and all of that. I, I'm not trying to say that these people didn't uh, were disrespectful of the Prophet necessarily and didn't see him as a Prophet, but they were not acknowledging of that high status of the Prophet to the point where even if they have to pay sadaqah before, that they'll still be willing to speak to him. But out of all these people, they say that Imam Ali continued to speak with the Prophet and he would take out this sadaqah and charity before he would speak to the Prophet. Anyway, after a while, once the point has been made to the people that look, your iman is not that strong, okay? Or else you would have continued to go to the Prophet, even if it meant giving charity beforehand. Another verse comes right after that. You'll find this in Surah Al-Mujadala again, but the next verse, verse 13, it says, أَأَشْفَقْتُمْ أَن تُقَدِّمُوا بَيْنَ يَدَيْ نَجْوَاكُمْ صَدَقَاتِ Is it that you don't want to? Is it that you are fearful? What's wrong? That you don't want to... Um, Put aside sadaqah and give sadaqah before you speak to the Prophet. What are you fearing? You're fearing poverty? What are you what are you afraid of? فَإِذْ لَمْ تَفْعَلُوا وَتَابَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكُمْ فَأَقِيمُوا الصَّلَاةِ وَآتُوا الزَّكَاةِ وَأَطِيعُوا اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ وَاللَّهُ خَبِيرٌ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ Now that this is not the case, you're not going to be doing this. Alright, that rule is done. That rule has expired. What you need to do now is just make sure that you uphold the prayer and then you pay your religious dues, the zakat, not the charity that you have to do every time before you speak to the Prophet. That's gone. Just the normal basic charity that you have to do once a year. Be obedient to Allah and His Prophet, etc. So this rule, this verse number 13 is, is to be said uh, is nasikh and abrogating of the previous verse which was verse 12. So making that verse a mansukh verse. Okay, abrogated. Both verses are still in the Qur'an. But the rule of one of them is abrogated. So the Imam is saying, also you have in this Qur'an, Nasikh and Mansukh. What else do we have? Number three, we have Rukhasahu wa Azaimahu. You will also find in this Qur'an, the Rukhas, which is the plural of Rukhsa, and the Azaim, which is the plural of Azima. So you will find the obligations, those things that are uh, necessary to be done, once again, that are wajib on you, versus those things that 
you are permitted to do, you're allowed to do, where God doesn't have an obligation on you. Rukhsa means permission. So those things you'll also find in the Qur'an. Now, there's one little point I want to make here that um, someone might say, okay, the, per what, the permissions that Allah has given us, that, th that which He's allowed us to do, okay, who cares about that? We need to just know what the wajib things are. No, 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 we have to also understand that even the rukhsa of Allah, the permission of Allah, plays a role in our ubudiyya, in our obedience towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What do I mean by that? Let's say someone does something that is halal, but when they're doing that thing that is halal, they're not even remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in it, okay? Not remembering Allah in the sense that when this person does it, they're not cognizant of the fact that God has given you permission to do this. They're just doing it because they're doing it. Now, of course, they haven't committed a haram act by doing this, but at the same time, their situation is going to be different than a person who says, okay, this is something that Allah has given me permission to do, and because God has given me permission to do this, then I'm going to do it. There's a difference between these two. One person is exhibiting ubudiyah, even in doing things that there's permissibility in. Why? Because they're bringing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His satisfaction into the equation. It's always good to have this in mind, that okay, Allah has allowed me to have fun in a halal way. That's why I'm going to have it. Allah has allowed me for this. Allah has allowed me for, for that. It's just better than just doing things without having that in mind. Uh, this is not something that's necessary, of course, as I said. It's not like a person who doesn't have this in mind is doing something wrong. But all in all, you know, this is a good opportunity. And we have, this brings me to this hadith, that it's one of my favorite hadiths, to be honest with you. Uh, where it says, "Inna Allah yuhibbu ayyuakhada biruhasihi, kama yuhibbu ayyuakhada biazaimihi." That Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, as much as He loves for us to take into consideration to act upon that which He has made necessary on us, obligatory on us, He, as much as He likes that, He He likes it for us to also take that which He has made halal on us and permissible on us to take that and to act upon it. Yeah, when something's halal, why not? But look, understanding that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He's the one who's given me this permission. So anyway, this is not um, something necessarily we needed to talk about to understand what Imam Ali is speaking of here. But it's a good point to bring out that the Imam puts his finger on ruhasihi, the same way he puts his finger on azaimihi. Okay? So this book, this Qur'an, has also let us know that which is wajib on us, those things that are obligatory, and at the same time has also let us know what is permissible on us. And so as a result, we can take we can bring that into bring Allah into the equation, Allah giving us permission into the equation, and we can even benefit more um, from the things that we do that are halal. Next uh, point that we have here Wahasahu Wahammahu. In this Quran, what you will find that has been also clarified is the those general rules versus the specific rules am and khas now there are different uh, understandings of what, what is meant here um, i'll just say one or two of them maybe um, one thing khas versus am it says that uh, khas is those rulings khas meaning particular khas literally means particular the particular rules that have to do with not all of the muslims okay but rather the ones who meet a certain criteria. Who, um, For example, let's talk about Hajj. Hajj is a ruling, but it's not for every Muslim. It's for the ones who meet the conditions 
that make Hajj wajib on them. For example, to have to be capable and able to do it to perform Hajj financially. For example, to do it physically, they're able to, etc., etc. So that is a khas rule. The Am rule, Am meaning it's widespread, general, it, it encompasses all Muslims. For example, Salat. Salat is wajib on everyone. If you can't pray standing, you have to pray sitting. If you can't pray sitting, worst case, you have to like just move your head a little bit as a gesture in Ruku' and Sajda, for example. So Salat is not like going to be like Hajj. Hajj, the, the obligation of Hajj is only there if we meet certain conditions. The obligation of salat is always there. So that's some said that's what is meant by am and khas. The Quran has rules that are for everyone and then rules that apply to a certain group of people. Another understanding of am and khas is that yeah, there will be general unrestricted statements in the Quran, but at the same time that same Quran in other verses will mention the qualifiers that restrict the scope of those general rules later. So for example, you know, one verse might say that all trade is halal. Another verse might say, okay, a trade that involves usury is haram. So one is a general rule that's saying trade is okay, but then another one will come and say that, okay, take out this particular, um, this particular category of trade. Drinking, eat and drink whatever you want. But then a verse says you can't consume intoxicants for example stay away from that stay away from swine things like that so there will be general statements in the quran and there will be more specific ones and when you bring them together you that you can reconcile them and come up with the actual rule so whatever is meant here by these it's not um too significant in my opinion that's number four number five here in the translation it says it's lessons and illustrations, um, which I think is acceptable. Ibra, the plural of which is Ibar. The Imam says Ibarahu. The singular of that is Ibra. Ibra means to take lesson. And so it comes from Ubur. Ubur means to cross by something, pass by something. And, uh, and the reason why they call it Ibra is usually, you know, you're passing by, you see something. Maybe you're even going through and journeying through history, you pass by different incidents in history, and as you see them, you take heed, you take lesson, and so it's called an ibra. Um, so that's one thing that the Quran has also. In addition to that, amthalahu. Amthal is a comparison. When you compare things, when you illustrate things, when you use examples to illustrate something and get a message across, right? The Quran, it talks about this, uh, these amthal. For example, it says, "Alam tara kaifan daraballahu mathalan kalimatan tayyibatan kashajaratin tayyiba." It says, "Have you not seen when Allah draws a, a comparison? A comparison of what compares a pure word and a pure belief that a person has to a pure tree that you know gives its fruit every second? So that's a comparison." These are examples we give to the people. So they can think and reflect and ponder and come up with the right, uh, the right conclusions and to understand that they have to follow the path of the Quran. For example, the Quran is full of amthal, lessons. You read about, for example, you read about Fir'aun and you're like, man, maybe I should be careful not to have a little mini Fir'aun in myself. Look what happened to that Fir'aun. Eventually his greatness was of no, no avail to him. You read about Qarun and his wealth and how 
the treasure chests that he had were so heavy that even the keys had to be carried by more than one person. And a group of men had to carry the keys to his treasure chest to his treasure chests. What happened in the end to all these people? These are all lessons for us so that we don't become arrogant. And so the Quran is full of these ibar and amthal, the Imam is saying. Now, number six. This might overlap with some of the things that we've said before. Mursal is something that is not restricted and confined. It's absolute, it's loose, it's free. Versus mahdud. Mahdud means restricted, not free. And so, once again, the Quran has a lot of unrestricted statements in it. And then there's there will be qualifiers that you'll find later. Restricted statements later. So, this is lots of times used in fiqh. But it can have also examples outside of fiqh as well. So this one is very similar actually to the one that we had before that said khasahu wa ammahu. One of the meanings we had for khasahu and ammahu. The next one is number seven is muhkamahu wa mutashabihahu. The muhkam and mutashabih. This Quran lets us know what its muhkamat are, mutashabihat are, muhkam. It gives us muhkam verses, it gives us mutashabih verses. Muhkam, definitive, concrete. The ones that we are, we're sure what it's trying to tell us. Versus mutashabih. Mutashabih are the ones that are not, they're metaphorical. They are a little harder to understand because of the metaphor that they are employing. And so if we don't, if we don't bounce those off of the definitive verses of the Qur'an, we might get in trouble because we will misunderstand those verses. And the Qur'an has pointed this out. In Surah Al-Imran, verse 7, that famous verse that talks about muhkamat and mutashabihat, those definitive verses versus the uh, the more metaphorical ones. It says, I'll just read the translation, it is he who has sent down to you the book. Parts of it are definitive verses, which are the mother of the book. Everything goes back to those verses. Mother of the book here uh, is implying that everything goes back to that. While others are metaphorical, as for those in whose hearts is deviance, they pursue what is metaphorical in it, courting temptation and courting its interpretation. So they go after that, they interpret it their own way, and so they're, what they're pursuing, it's their own temptation. They're after, well, here it says temptation in the, in the in English, but the Arabic, it says ibtigha al-fitna. They're, they're after problems. They're causing problems. They pursue problems. Uh, by doing this, by only sticking to the metaphorical ones without understanding them in light of the definitive ones. Then it goes on, it says, But no one knows its interpretation except Allah and those firmly grounded in knowledge. They say we believe in it all. All of it is from our Lord and none takes admonition except those who possess intellect. Okay, so this Qur'an has muhkam and mutashabih. And there's a reason why I'm explaining each of these brothers and sisters because in the end I want to draw a little conclusion. Then it goes on. It says, Mufassiran. This is number eight now. Mufassiran mujmalahu wa mubayyinan ghawamidahu. There are verses in the Quran that are going to be, um, they're going to be vague. The Quran is going to do tafsir of those vague verses for us. And there are verses that are that are, that are ghamid. Ghawamid is the plural of ghamidah which means deep, hard to understand. So this Qur'an is going to let us know, is going to let us know the details of certain things that we're not sure about, and is going to explain to us deep teachings 
there's one thing that comes to mind when I read this, that the Qur'an is going to be the one that clarifies its deeper teachings, clarifies some of the vague things that it has. The one thing that comes to mind here is tafsirul Qur'an bil Qur'an, how certain verses of the Qur'an, we have hadith for this as well, that um, put verses of the Qur'an next to other verses of the Qur'an so that you can come to certain conclusions. This is called tafsirul Qur'an bil Qur'an, understanding the Qur'an through the Qur'an. So one verse might not get into certain details, but then another verse somewhere else gets into certain details, and you can put these two together to draw certain conclusions. Of course, um, I'm just saying this all like in 30 seconds, but there's, this itself is a whole science, and it takes a lot of hard work and practice, and I would say, as many of you already know, the master and champion of this method of understanding the Qur'an through the Qur'an and bringing verses together, pieces together to make a bigger picture, the master and champion of that is none other than Alama Tawatabai in his Tafsirul Mizan. May Allah bless his soul. And that itself um, requires a course and uh, you know of how what this Tafsirul Quran bil Quran looks like, what the examples of it are, what the what the framework and the the what the boundaries of such um, of such a methodology are, and so on. Number nine on this list of things that the Imam says about the Quran I like this one it says you will find in the Quran those things that Allah has taken an oath from you that you have to know so for example the Quran in it they say a third of the verses are speaking about ma'ad and resurrection okay and all of the, the details of resurrection and judgment day and so on okay so this is something Allah ex- expects us to know this is something that it's as if Allah has taken an oath from us when he sent the Quran to us it's as if he's taken an oath from us that this is something I expect you to learn acknowledge and know not to leave this dunya without knowing this okay verses so that versus this now that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has shown leniency towards his servants in regards to their knowledge of it or lack thereof actually the fact that there are some things though in this Qur'an that people will just not get out of it, which is fine. Now there are maybe those chosen ones of Allah will, will, will get it, or those who are firmly grounded in knowledge will get those points. But all in all, there's some knowledge in the Qur'an that people are going to be ignorant of, but Allah doesn't expect them to know it either. And so they are, it's, it's muwassa'in or muwassi'in if I'm not mistaken here can't see it properly um, it should be because the one before it was so there are some things that Allah has taken an oath that we have to know it from this Quran there are other things that are going to be the deeper things that Allah doesn't expect us to have to know and there's going to be a leniency towards our ignorance of those matters now someone here might ask well, the Qur'an, you know, is a kitabun mubin, is a clear book, and uh, it's a book of guidance and all that. Why, why? It doesn't make sense for the Qur'an to not be clear in every single verse of it, of it and to have things in it that not everyone is going to be able to access. And the answer to that, I think, is pretty clear. The Qur'an never claimed that I am a book that's going to make sure that you are able to 
be able to grasp every single deep detail that's within it. But rather, the Qur'an is saying that I am a book of guidance that will secure your akhirah. In other words, that which you need for the akhirah, I will teach you and it will be very clear. It never promised us that every single detail of every story that I give you is going to be clear to you. So for example, you're not going to able, be able to ever figure out probably who Dhul Qarnain was that the Qur'an speaks of. Who is Dhul Qarnain? We don't know exactly who he identifies with. All we know is Dhul Qarnain means the one that possessed two horns. Who is this person? Are these two horns part of his head? Are they part of his uh, helmet that he had that had two horns? Is it Alexander the Great? Is it this person? Is it that person? Is it a prophet of God? Is it not? All we know is there's a story in there. It's a pretty cool story too, actually, of him and um, his encounter with Ya'juj and Ma'juj. Okay, that's all we'll have. So does the Quran promise us that we're going to know who he is exactly? No. Someone might get upset. Then why is it talking about it? Look, take the lesson from this story. You know it's true because the Quran is telling you the story. So we know the story is true. What is Instead of trying to figure out who he was, try to figure out that which pertains to you and I, which is what are we, what is the Quran expecting us to take from this story and that story? Yeah. Sometimes if we're not careful, we get caught up in these details when they have nothing to do. Knowing them or not knowing them will not have anything to do with securing our Akhirah. We end up wasting time on it, spending time on it. Sometimes even like questioning God, God forbid, why didn't he explain this more? When we, can, when we can be focusing on the other things that the Qur'an is telling us. So the Qur'an is going to be clear in everything that we need to follow, uh, to secure our Akhirah. We have to understand that. In it, it will say, it will skip a lot of things. It won't even tell us the different rak'ahs of the Salat. It won't tell us that. But it says, go and take everything you can from the Prophet We go to the Prophet, the Prophet says, hey, after me, go to the Imams as well, for example. And so on. So, بَيْنَ مَأْخُوذٍ مِيثَاقُ عِلْمِهِ وَمُوَسَّعٍ عَلَى الْعِبَادِ فِي جَهْلِهِ Number 10. وَبَيْنَ مُثْبَتٍ فِي الْكِتَابِ فَرْضُهُ وَمَعْلُومٍ فِي السُنَّةِ نَسْخُهُ This basically is saying that what you'll find in the Qur'an sometimes is that which the Qur'an has made wajib, but it has been abrogated and changed by the Prophet and the Sunnah of the Prophet there's, there will be certain rules that you'll find that will speak of um, that will speak of a certain ruling, and then what will we'll be a hundred percent sure that the prophet came and he said that this ruling no longer holds. This is the new ruling for this matter. So you can say that sometimes nasq happens with another verse. Sometimes it happens with a sunnah, but a sunnah that is of course yaqini. A sunnah that we are 100% sure about because it wants to stand up against what the Qur'an is saying. We have to be sure the Prophet said it. So if the Prophet says it and it abrogates that which the verse was saying, it falls under this category that the Imam says, That which the obligation of it has been established in the book. Okay, But we are sure that it has been abrogated through the sunnah of the Prophet Number 11. وَوَاجِبٍ فِي السُنَّةِ أَخْذُهُ وَمُرَخَّصٍ فِي الْكِتَابِ تَرْكُهُ This one is kind of the opposite of the previous one. Something that whose obligation has been established in the sunnah. But then the Qur'an has come and abrogated that kind of. And I'm using these terms loosely right now. 
abrogated them. Um, the, the kitab, the Quran has come and abrogated that which has been established as wajib, as obligatory in the sunnah. And the Quran has said, no, it's fine, you don't have to do that. So an example that they use for that one is you'll have the whole story of how in the beginning when people were fasting during the Prophet's time, if they were to um, do their iftar and then sleep after iftar, if they were to sleep after iftar, if they would wake up like even in the middle of the night, they weren't supposed to eat anything anymore. Then a verse of the Quran comes and says, okay, no, no, you can you can eat and drink. You can eat and drink until Fajr time basically. So and that that the the verse for that that is cited is Surah Baqarah verse one eighty seven. وَكُلُوا وَشَرَبُوا حَتَّى يَتَبَيَّنَ لَكُمُ الْخَيْطُ الْأَبْيَضُ مِنَ الْخَيْطِ الْأَسْوَدِ مِنَ الْفَجْرِ. I don't want to get into the tafsir of this verse and some of the uh, complications of understanding it. Just all in all, this was this impermissibility of eating anything after you sleep after you've had your iftar. That was lifted and it was permissible to eat all the way till Fajr time. Now, of course, we're not saying that people should eat from iftar till fajr but anyway yeah this whole idea of of suhoor or sahri as they say you know that you know now we're allowed to do that now but according to this no they weren't allowed to if they had their iftar then they couldn't um, they couldn't have anything till the next day and they had to fast the next day number 12 Another thing that you will find in this book, the Qur'an, is those rules that have to do with a certain time and a time period. They are wajib for that particular time that they have to be done in. But then, after that, they're not, they are not to be done anymore. So for example, in the month of Ramadan, we fast. But after the month of Ramadan is over, there's no fasting, there's no fasting that is wajib. All right, but you'll have the example of salat. Salat is going to always have its time uh, every day. It's not like it happens once and it's over with, or that it happens once. Although I can say I would like to say that even salat is one that the salat of every day is for that day, and once you pray it, it's done, and you don't have to do anything after that. So this salat even might be an example like Hajj, that is wajib in its particular time, and after that. It's not going to be there anymore. A new salat becomes wajib. But a better example of this would be Hajj probably. Or excuse me, the month of Ramadan and the fasting of the month of Ramadan. Um, I think that would be the better example maybe. But even salat might be an example for this. Hajj might even be an example for this and so on. Versus other wajibat that are going to be wajib all the time. Anytime, so for example, anytime I see somebody that is doing something wrong. And I know they are doing it voluntarily knowingly and willingly what is wajib on me amr al-ma'ruf and nahi al-munkar enjoining good and forbidding evil will be wajib on me right so that is not something that happens once and then okay it's over or it has this particular time no all the time anytime i see a munkar being committed and i can do something about it and there's a chance i can be effective about that then it's wajib for me to do it and it falls under that category. So some wajibat, they have a specific time. After that time, they're not expected to be done anymore. They don't. It doesn't even count anymore. Versus some that, no, they have their specific time. They, they don't have a specific time. And, you know, anytime they come up, it's going to be wajib on them. And there's a possibility for them to come up anytime, really. Number 13. وَمُبَايِنٌ بَيْنَ مَحَارِمِهِ مِنْ كَبِيرًا أو عد عليه نيرانه أو صغيرا أرصد له 
ghufranahu. What you also find in this Quran is that you, you find that there are a distinction is made between the kabair, the great sins, and the minor sins, the major and minor sins. A distinction is made. How do we tell that? What what is the distinction? How can we tell these two apart? It says, well, the big ones, the great ones, the major ones are awada alayhi nirana, who are the ones that Allah has has promised that He will retaliate with fire for that thing. Allah will punish with fire. Niran means fire. Allah has made the promise that He will use fire as a punishment for that. So let me read the translation. It says, Some are major regarding which there exists the threat of fire. What about the other ones though? No, you won't have that. There are others that are minor for which there are prospects of forgiveness. That Allah speaks about, Hey, I'll forgive them. If you stay away from the great sins, I will forgive your minor sins. So minor sins, we do have to keep this in mind. Our ulama, our maraja and mujtahideen have pointed out that even if a, a sin is a minor one, but if you are insistent on them and you keep repeating them, that itself is considered a major sin. But, you know, we'll all, none of us are infallible. We'll make mistakes here and there and, you know, we'll commit minor sins here and there. Allah says in the Quran, try to stay away from the major ones. If you stay away from those then I will forgive the smaller ones, the smaller sins. Well, what are those smaller sins? Exactly what we said, or the Imam said here. They are the ones that Allah hasn't promised fire for them 100%. Rather, Allah has said that there's a chance of forgiveness. Now, does this mean that the great sins are never going to be forgiven? Of course not. This is not what the verse is saying. Maybe this verse is to be taken as, if you commit great sins and you leave this dunya without repenting from them, then you will probably be punished badly for them or you deserve to be punished badly for them. But minor sins aren't like that. Even if you don't ask for repentance for them, Allah still might forgive them very easily if you were staying away from the major sins. Okay, So it seems that this verse might be talking about uh, those people who leave this wor world without repenting from their sins. If it's a great sin, God has promised that he'll, that fire will, will be the punishment. If... if it's a minor sin and you leave this dunya without repenting, then there's a good chance that Allah will forgive it if you were staying away from the great ones. This is all if you don't repent. But if you repent in this life, even if it's a great sin, yeah, then that there Allah can and will forgive. And if you stay away from that great sin that you had have committed in the past, you stay away from it, you try your best, and you stay away from it and you're regretful of what you did, that is tawbah, that is repentance. Why shouldn't Allah forgive that? And all of our scholars, verses of the Qur'an, a hadith that we have, everything is pointing to the fact that even if it's a great sin, Allah will forgive. So I don't want us to think that if it's a great sin and Allah has promised fire for it, that there's no way it can be erased unless we get punished with that fire. No. I think that what is meant here is that if you leave this dunya without repenting from it, if, and it's a great sin, then you probably will be deserving of a punishment. But if you do talbah, then that's not the case, inshallah. As I said, we have too much literature and scripture that says that forgiveness uh, will be there for the one who has even committed a great sin but has asked for forgiveness. The only thing that brothers and sisters we have to do is be regretful and try our best not to repeat it. If we repeat it, we do another tawbah again. Of course, not fooling ourselves either. We don't want to fool ourselves either. We try our best. Now, once again, as I said, we're not infallible. So we, we might repeat the mistake again and again and again, but really try to get back up on our feet and inshallah, 
Allah will help us eventually uh, put that aside. Versus the one who just lays back on their back and, you know, says that, hey, like, you know, I, I committed this sin once, it's all over, why, why even try? Uh, no, no, Allah wants us to try and get back up on our feet and not repeat those great sins. Okay, and finally, number 14. وَبَيْنَ مَقْبُولٍ فِي أَدْنَاهُ مُوَسَّعٍ فِي أَقْصَاهُ There are some things that even a little bit of it Allah will accept from us. And too much of it, I, well, I don't want to say it like that. I don't want to say too much of it because that sounds like it's a negative thing. But an abundance of it, Allah doesn't expect from us. Okay? So for example, in the Qur'an, it says, فَقْرَأُوا مَا تَيَسَّرَ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ Oh people, read whatever you can of the Qur'an. So, what if I can only read one page? So be it. One page a day, let's go for it, let's do it. Why not? A verse, two verses, I mean, it should be more than that, inshallah. And I address myself first and foremost when it comes to this matter. But all in all, a little bit, dhikr. Ya ayyuhaladheena aman, udhkurullaha dhikran kathira. Oh, oh people, remember Allah a lot. Udhkurullaha dhikran kathira. An, an abundant remembrance. But what if, I, what if I only remember him a little bit? Well, a little bit of it is still good, better than nothing. So this Qur'an has within it also those things that Allah would want us to at least do a little bit of it. And if we can't, if we can't do the highest level of it and can't accomplish that, it's fine. It's not expected and Allah shows leniency in regards to that. So these are the 14 points that the Imam mentions regarding this book that was left behind after the Holy Prophet as tariqin wadih as a clear path and as a standing sign for all of us to cling on to that will take us in the right direction. But as I said in the beginning, there's no mention of Ahlul Bayt although in other similar excerpts of Nahjul Balagha, the Imam does point that out. But all in all, what we have to keep in mind is if there's so much in this Quran, we have to ask ourselves, um, well, who is going to be clarifying all of these for us? Has the Prophet been able to clarify everything for us? I, I personally don't think uh, there are too many out there that will say that everything has been clarified. And that's where the need for an Imam will also come into the picture. So it is safe to say some might argue that although the Imam here is only speaking about the Quran and has not brought up the Ahlul Bayt, but all in all, it is implying that there is something about this Quran that you will need help on as well. And that's where the Imams will come into the picture. But as I said, it doesn't necessarily mean that if the Imam was not speaking about the Ahlul Bayt here, that that is not one of those things that is necessary either. After this part of the khutbah, we move into the last part of the khutbah of this uh, sermon where the Imam speaks about Hajj, which is a different discussion, inshallah. And we'll leave that for our next session. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.